0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast, now at the New York Public Library. I'm Robert Boynton. In 2011, Hilton Owls read from His Sister, Her Monologue, a novella he published in McSweeney's. Al's is a staff writer at The New Yorker, and his theater criticism was awarded a Pulitzer Prize in 2017. He is the author of two books, The Women, published in 1996, and White Girls, which came out in 2014. A Prior Love, his profile of the comedian Richard Pryor, appeared in The New Yorker in 1999. Hilton is, among other things, going to be reading from a piece in McSweeney's 35, which is a novella-length piece of writing, which is absolutely astonishing. Hilton's one of our great, great friends, and we're so happy you're here. Oh, oh thank you so much. I have just a couple of notes. Eight years ago, I got a, a very sweet email from Katha Pollitt saying, you have been inducted. And I was so astonished and freaked out that I didn't answer the email, and I, I never came to a meeting. And it was Wren who asked me, aren't you a member? <laughs> and I had to admit that I was. So, now that i'm not ashamed to be among people i've admired so much and so greatly for so long i think this is a trial by fire really let's just get it all over with at once i'm going to talk to you a little bit about this process that's led me to writing fiction it was always something that i did for myself and To his credit, Dave Eggers, I spoke to his class in San Francisco, and he said, I bet you write fiction, and I said, oh, no, 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 (laughs) and then I went home and I sent him something, and so all of this is about sort of coming out in a way. For many years now, I've been involved with the question of how we say what we say or not. For many years now, I've been interested in writing about the unspeakable, namely the issue of black men and what they may or may not mean to one another. I've been writing about these issues in a closeted manner and for a long time because I've had to learn in recent years how to listen to myself and not someone else. That's because I've always worked in nonfiction. Still, I've always loved stretching it to the limit, meaning it's my belief that nonfiction can have the emotional truth that fiction generally demands. While we demand or expect a certain aura of truth in fiction, it's not limited by facts. In recent years, I felt constrained by facts. This doesn't mean that I'm prepared to write fiction. In fact, I was frightened of it, having worked in other genres almost exclusively. But stories dictate their forms. In 1999, when I wrote about the comedian Richard Pryor, I felt my resistance to fiction melting away because Richard Pryor demanded an imaginative response to his life, his material. When I asked David Remick, the editor of The New Yorker, whether or not I could write about Pryor, who was still alive, I told him that I wanted to set myself the task of writing a profile about someone who couldn't be profiled, not in any traditional way. Richard Pryor had MS and could barely speak. I wanted to invent him out of quotes and ephemera and hearsay. That is, I wanted to write fiction using a real character. I began the piece in this way and it's called A Prior Love, and the first section is called Skin Flick. Winter, 1973. Late afternoon, the entre-act between dusk and darkness, when the people who conduct their business in the street, numbers runners in gray Chesterfields, out-of-work barmaids playing the dozens, adolescents cultivating their cigarette Jones and lust, small-time hustlers selling authentic gold wristwatches that are platinum bright, look for a place to roost and to drink in the day's sin. Young black guy looks like the comedian Richard Pryor, walks into one of his hangouts, Opal's Silver Spoon Cafe, a greasy dive with an r and jukebox. It could be in Detroit or in New York, could be anywhere. Opal's has a proprietor, Opal, a young and wise black woman who looks like the comedian Lily Tomlin and a little bell over the door that goes tink link announcing all the handouts and gimmies who come to sit at Opal's counter and talk about how needy their respective asses are. Black Eye sits at the counter, and Opal offers him some potato soup, something nourishing, she says. Black Eye has moist on the verge of lying or crying eyes and a raggedy afro. He wears a green fatigue jacket, the kind of jacket brothers brought home from Nam, which guys like this guy continue to wear long after they've returned home, too shell-shocked or stoned to care much about their haberdashery. Juke, that's the black guy's name, is Opal's baby, flopping about in all them narcotics he's trying to get off of by taking that methadone, which Juke and Opal pronounce metherdon, The way two old-timey southerners would the way Juke and Opal's elders might have if they knew what that shit was or was for. Duke and Opal express their feelings for each other, their shared view of the world in a lyrical language, a colored people's language, which tries to <clears throat> atomize their anger and their depression. Sometimes their anger is wry. Opal is tired of hearing about Juke's efforts to get a job and tells him so. Hand me that job about job training. She says, you trained all right. You highly skilled at not working. But that's not entirely true. Juke has submitted himself to the rigors of rehabilitation. I was down there for about three weeks at that place working, Juke says, had on a suit, tie, shaving, acting crazy. Looked just like a fool in the circus. Pause. And I'm fed up with it. Pause. Now I know how to do a job that don't know how to be done no more. Opal's face fills with sadness. Looking at her face can fill your mind with sadness. She says, for real? It's a rhetorical question that black people have always asked each other or themselves when they're handed more hopelessness. Is this for real? Night is beginning to spread all over Juke and Opal Street. It is the color of a thousand secrets combined. The doorbell's tiny peal. Two white people, a man and a woman, social workers, enter opals, youngish, trench-coated. And the minute the white people enter, something terrible happens from an aesthetic point of view. They alienate everything. They fracture our suspended disbelief. They interrupt our identification with the protagonist of the TV show we've been watching, which becomes TV only when those social workers start hassling our juke, our opal, equal halves, of the same resilient black body. When we see those white people, we start thinking about things like credits, and remember that this is a television play, after all, written by the brilliant Jane Wagner, and played with astonishing alacrity and compassion by Richard Pryor and Lily Tomlin on Lily, Tomlin's second variety special, which aired on CBS in 1973, and which remains a little over a quarter of a century later, the most profound meditation on race and class that I have ever seen on a major network. We're doing some community research and we'd like to ask you a few questions, the white woman social worker declares as soon as she enters Opal's. Juke and Opal are more than familiar with this line of inquiry, which presumes that people like them are always available for questioning, servants of the liberal cause. I wonder if you can tell me, have you ever been addicted to drugs, the woman says to Juke? Prior's Juke response instantly. Yeah, I've been addicted, he says. I'm addicted right now. Don't write it down, man. Be cool. It's not for the public. I mean, what I go through is private. He is incapable of saying, fuck you. His first response, or even his first thought. Being black has taught him how to allow white people their innocence. For black people, being around white people is sometimes like taking care of babies you don't like. Babies who throw up on you again and again, but whom you cannot punish because they're babies. (laughs) Eventually, you direct that anger at yourself. It has nowhere else to go. Juke tries to turn the questioning around a little through humor, which is part of his pathos. I have some questions, he tells the community researchers, then tries to approximate their straight, white tone. Who's Pigmeat Markham's mama, he asks. Wilt Chamberlain, the tallest colored chap you ever saw? When the white people have left and Juke is about to leave, wrapped in his thin jacket, he turns to Opal and says, you sweet, you a sweet woman, I'll think about you. His eyes are wide with love and need, and maybe fear or madness. Be glad when it's spring, he says to Opal. Pause, flower. By the time the article came out, I felt strange and unsettled. I had started to write fiction, but I didn't want to leave facts behind. And as much as I loved writers like E.L. Doctorow and Gertrude Stein and Kunder, writers who used real characters in fiction, I was looking for something more internal, to talk about the ways in which celebrity and blackness and maleness could and had been internalized by me and perhaps had shaped my father, for instance. But I didn't want to write a memoir. Slowly, blindly, I began to write a book called Richard Pryor, A Novel that would concern itself with the issues I've raised in the beginning of the piece. But the book, as you're about to hear, didn't exist for many years. For many years, I told other stories in the book, stories that had nothing to do with Richard Pryor or blackness or maleness, issues I had in no way dealt with before on such a large scale. And perhaps that's what I mean to talk about through reading this work today, how writing surprises us if we mean to do the work of writers, which is to ignore genre and to listen to the stories that define us and come from somewhere in us, but outside of us as well. It took me many years, but the novel I mean to write turned out to be a book about my father who died a number of years ago, a man whose intelligence and fear I saw in Richard Pryor's performances. So I used a real person, my father, to talk about a real person, Richard Pryor, but only as each affected and informed my life as a writer which is to say my imagination. And so here's the beginning of the book. The book begins with the nonfiction that you just heard a little bit of, and then you turn after you finish that, and it begins the fictional part. As it happens, Richard Pryor and the reporter met only once on the page when, in the spring of 1998, the reporter began collecting information about the comedian for his article, which ran in a national magazine the following winter by conducting various interviews, listening to Pryor's old routines on audio tape or CD, scanning a number of critical studies and biographies for details about the star's personal life, business dealings, and so on. It gradually became clear to him that if his finished report was to reflect anything of the numerous turns Richard Pryor's mind had taken over the course of his life and career, the reporter's writing would have to be as nonlinear as one of Richard Pryor's better monologues, a joke with no end, with a number of punchlines, and not a little political content. But that piece was not to be. The reporter was lousy with responsibility. He reasoned that since he had pitched one assignment to write a credible portrait of the by then, almost entirely silent, reclusive artist, he could not hand in something else. And yet, as the reporter gathered more and more facts about Richard Pryor, they seemed to add up less and less on the page. For, after many years of reporting what this or that maker of modern culture, such as it was, had done, and how they had done it, the reporter felt he could no longer do this, arrange quotes in a manner meant to satisfy a magazine or newspaper's idea of the truth, which he had always considered specious anyway, Nor did the reporter feel he could continue doing this, interviewing makers of modern culture, such as they were, as if he cared, or that they made a difference to his way of thinking. At one point, the reporter had cared. Years passed, and then he did not. In between, the reporter lost sight of the kind of writing he wanted to accomplish when he first started out, fact that had the penumbra of fiction. But there was no home for that kind of writing once the reporter started publishing in the early 1990s. Even the quote-unquote alternative newspapers and magazines he wrote for then wanted fact upon fact, as if no one believed the world they lived in. Several years before meeting Richard Pryor on the page, the reporter had tried, as an alternative to journalism, to write a novel. But he found the form as limiting as fact, There was no truth in it. It had always been that way. When the reporter read fiction, he wanted the novel under review to include the truth of the world. And when he read fact, he wished the writer had imbued it with something of the truth of their imagination. What the reporter did not know how to do create an admixture of fact and fiction in an extended work that defied both genres. Then he began to think about Richard Pryor, who, in his work at least, had done nothing but. The reporter knew of no greater modern practitioner or melder of journalistic ethos and the morality (coughs) inherent in fiction than Richard Pryor. The comedian's work and life were rife with such issues. Tell me the truth so I can look at these lies, one made-up Richard Pryor character said to another through the real Richard Pryor once. In monologue after monologue, and using a variety of different sounding voices, Richard Pryor portrayed characters that represented the truth of the world, or the truth of the world as his characters saw it. He was everything. A junkie talking to a straight black man who will not help him, a white woman talking to her black lover, his heart talking to itself, his own daddy talking to a younger and no less sad and horny Richard Pryor, a German shepherd, He had also played a monkey, the monkey's dick, and a white movie executive. (laughs) Once he was even the entire continent of Africa, maybe he could play a reporter. (laughs) Pryor appealed to the reporter as the subject for another equally salient reason, his silence. By the spring of 1998, when the reporter started to research and write his piece, eventually called A Pryor Love, Richard Pryor's speech had been severely limited by MS he could not be interviewed. If anyone wanted to write about him, they would have to make him up to some extent. At first, the reporter reveled in Richard Pryor's silence. He loved the thought of not having to interview the artist and then check transcripts of what Richard Pryor actually said against what Richard Pryor might have intended. But the reporter would have to fill Richard Pryor's silence with something. What that something was, he did not know. After the initial rush of imagining what Richard Pryor might say, the reporter froze. He was not free enough in his mind to record it. Journalism had rendered his perceptibility speechless. So he reverted back to the facts about what Richard Pryor ate and when, the number of women he slapped or married, and so on. As the reporter set about trying to build a narrative based on the facts available to him, Richard Pryor set about trying to destroy them. He demanded the reporter look beyond his already heavily documented life and incorporate something of his own imagination in the piece. Fair was fair. Hadn't he, Richard Pryor, made a spectacle of himself in order to reveal certain truths about himself in the world? The very idea frightened the reporter which is why Richard Pryor made the suggestion in the first place to shock and inspire him. After all, Richard Pryor's best work had grown out of or was an expression of fright over the way women behaved, over the way white people behaved, and how cocaine made him behave. Now he wanted to be afraid of the reporter, or rather, surprised. Having lived in the reporter's mind since the spring of 1998, they shared a room in Lower Manhattan Not much was in it except old magazines, a cute computer, and a telephone. For years and years after they met, Richard Pryor and the reporter lived with no one else. So the comedian knew just how nasty his imagination was. Richard Pryor wondered why the reporter didn't exploit his imagination along with the facts in order to say something new or, at any rate, hitherto unsaid about Richard Pryor. Maybe the reporter could write about what a sensitive, lousy Richard Pryor was, or how lousy America was with other Richard Pryors, guys who, failing to find a mic, found the needle. To that end, Richard Pryor, or at least the one who lived in the reporter's mind, suggested this, that the reporter simply use his name, Richard Pryor, and make the rest of him up. Would that free the reporter to say what Richard Pryor knew he wanted to say? that colored men like Richard Pryor, like the reporter, were political by birth, that for them, reading newspapers, let alone writing for them, was a strange enterprise since they were so often that very news's target? The truth is, Richard Pryor would not settle for being defined by facts alone. To do so would be to negate the spirit behind his entire body of work, wherein an existentially freaked guy named Richard Pryor always told lies to get at the truth. This would not do. The reporter had been commissioned to write facts. He could not add his imagination to all that. He had been trained, or as one editor had it, professionalized, not as a writer, but as a journalist. So over the years, he had grown to distrust his imagination, not so much distrust it as defend himself against it by discounting his imagination's market value, which is where journalism leads you, counting words against dollars. And besides, the reporter said, reasoning with the Richard Pryor in his mind, who would pay him to describe where Richard Pryor persisted in taking his writing even after a prior love had been filed and published? From fact to fiction, with a little of each and both. The fact is, Richard Pryor thought a prior love was some kind of joke. He saw the published article from his perch in the reporter's mind when it first came out. And once he focused on it, he liked to die. First of all, he couldn't get over all those neat columns of type filled with facts. He couldn't get his head around how little those columns, pillars of truth, were meant to resemble the reporter's mind, which was not neat. In fact, Richard Pryor knew, having lived with a reporter as long as he lived with anyone, especially women, that his charge distrusted direct statements of any kind. They contradicted the way his mind worked. Nevertheless. Richard Pryor could not get his own head around the way a prior love didn't work. It seemed the reporter had boiled his life and work down to a single idea or notion. Only America could have produced a Richard Pryor, the freak. Thank you. The fact is, it took the reporter some time to convince Richard Pryor that he did not have a say in how a prior love was laid out. Journalists rarely have that kind of power. And why not, Richard Pryor wondered aloud. Being colored, Richard Pryor believed in the look of things, that the inside of something was equal to its exterior. For him, each had its own aesthetic and thus moral weight. As a performer, Richard Pryor had illustrated his words by using his body. What better way to show your words value than by putting your body graphics out there with it too? The reporter tried to explain, his tone was defensive now, how different his role in the culture was. He said that, as a journalist, he was meant to be omnipresent, a faithful recorder of the deeds and actions of others, a messenger dispatching the truth to the world, a conduit to the facts, a paragon of honesty, a gatherer of quotes, a reaper of truth, a non-historicizer, a defender of accuracy, an enemy of fiction, resistant to interpretation, blind to subtlety dead to the subject's various sensitivities once they supplied the killing quote. The look of things was of little interest to him. Richard Pryor did not buy any of this. Still, even though one version of Richard Pryor had run, the subject retained the hope that the reporter would go on to write others. It was not too late, or was it? For what Richard Pryor saw lurking behind the reporter's rhetoric about the journalist's role was a writer who was afraid to be an author and say I as Richard Pryor had or did. What Richard Pryor gleaned from all the lies the reporter insisted on telling even now, writing the truths for a living, if he ever did, hadn't gotten the reporter any closer to speaking it. The reporter wouldn't hear any of this. What did Richard Pryor know in the end, especially when it came to other people? Had not he been a boozer and a junkie, so self-absorbed he'd made a number of wives tremble with neglect, Is that what he wanted to reduce the reporter to? A trembling woman who'd lost her reason? All foolish and in love, waiting for Richard Pryor to inspire him to write the truth about the world, his world, as he saw it. The reporter knew who he was. Richard Pryor didn't. Wasn't that one reason why Richard Pryor had to play all those different characters? Because he didn't know who he was? Richard Pryor loved all of that. Had the reporter put any of his questions, ambivalences, or rage vis-a-vis his subject into a prior love, then it would have made the piece worth reading, at least insofar as one reader was concerned. But the reporter had not. Richard Pryor could forgive him for all those neat columns of type. Magazine policy was magazine policy. But what he could not get over was how the reporter had reduced the Richard Pryor in his mind to a single idea or notion. How could he let that happen? The reporter defended himself against Richard Pryor's scorn by describing certain rules of journalism that were, again, outside his control. For instance, magazine and newspaper reporters were restricted to one idea per piece for fear that if there were more, it would confuse the reader. In the end, a Pryor left couldn't be anything other than what it was because of journalism's relationship to ideas, not the reporter's. Richard Pryor scoffed. In his whole life, the comedian had never known one colored gentleman who had the luxury of having a single thought at any given time. In order to survive America, let alone have a career, you had to be many things to many people, all in an effort to dodge your generally white interlocutors' subconscious desire for you not to use your mind or speak their language. Richard Pryor went on. If the reporter couldn't express on the page what it looked like When one existentially freaked guy named Richard Pryor met an equally freaked guy like the reporter, what was the point of writing? Where was the story not to mention the truth? The reporter was not willing to concede to all that. Two years, and then six years after Pryor Love came out, he still wouldn't. To do so would mean admitting to several truths he admitted from the piece in order to make it less about himself than journalism, which is to say more about the facts, than the real story, which was this, how one existentially freaked colored guy was continually drawn to and repelled by the romance he found in the other. Like it or not, Richard Parry's vexing who's your daddy tone during the preceding conversations instigated the reporters ever present just below the surface, what's a daddy belligerence? a nasty bowl filled with rhetoric and certain facts. The truth is the reporter probably wouldn't have been ready for Richard Pryor had he not made room for the comedian by severing ties with his own father first. He could not have two black fathers having too much and too little of his own to begin with. The reporter had stopped speaking to his father in 1993. The reporter was 32 years old then. The reason for their break, well, It would take a Richard Pryor to describe it. Suffice to say that once the reporter realized he had spent the majority of his writing life turning out the facts his father revered in a world his son grew to distrust, the world of journalism with its fake impartiality, access reporting, and the rest, and practically no time writing whatever he meant to write, the reporter stopped treating his dad with the same reverence as Richard Pryor's potentially cock-sucking junkie behaved towards the older, clueless, sub-obsessed wino he meets on the street one Sunday afternoon in his 1977 routine, wino and junkie, with hope as though there was a father to be had underneath all that unfortunate dick. And now here was Richard Pryor calling all that daddy shit up again, if only because his goading and all his unanswerable questions were so much like the father's. Were Richard Pryor and the father the same in the end? Were all black men, the Puddin' Head Wilson idea, some version of one another? All love, as the Joker saying goes, comes with a price. But for the reporter, all love came with a debt. If you gave him something he loved, a book detailing a world he would never have known existed before reading said book, a kiss that reminded him he had a body, he offered his life by way of thanks since he considered the gift giver as having helped realize his life. For a long time, the reporter believed he owed his father language. That the father's interest in language was generated by a form, journalism, that held little, if any, interest to his son from the beginning didn't matter. The reporter took owing wherever he could get it. For the reporter then, every act of writing was this, I shall always be his son, whoever he was, Even after he had met Richard Pryor, who, one suspects, only read newspapers when he was in them, the reporter was writing to commemorate his first language, his father's. Not speaking to his father all those years before he met Richard Pryor on the page did not minimize what he felt he owed him. The silence only served to increase it, but no one can bear silence on its own. Most of us fill it with memories, which is the language of silence. The fact is, the reporter loved his father's interest in the news. At first, the reporter didn't know that the words the father read with such relish were facts. To him, they were just words. How could some words be true and others false? By the time the reporter got around to trying to make the distinction between fact and fiction, he couldn't determine which words belonged where, so he split the difference. He didn't mean to at 10 at 20 even after he became a reporter the reporter tried to like straight facts if only to please the father when the reporter was 10 and started reading novels it was borne in on him that the news was just that having a news hound for a dad allowed the reporter to imagine he had a father who was a powerful citizen of the world he knew so much about it and if he knew so much about it couldn't he protect his only sons Black ass, as Richard Pryor might put it, from various hurts and truths, using the facts he liked and knew as a weapon. Actually, that was a difficult delusion or hope for the reporter to maintain. Richard Pryor's jokes only confirmed what the reporter knew at 10, at 20, even after he became a reporter. It was foolish to believe that a colored man could save a colored boy from anything when they couldn't even save themselves. Look at Richard Pryor. Look at the reporter's father. In truth, the reporter's father was not in the world. He was in his room. He lived on the top floor of an apartment building that his mother owned in Brooklyn. The father's room was filled not with children, but with newspapers. He lived as Richard Pryor lived, especially after he had children, without them. It had always been that way. The reporter's parents never lived in the same house. Ever since they started having children together during the Korean War, the mother lived in an apartment of her own, not too far from the reporter's father, her unmarried husband. To ask him for more would mean the father would have to behave like an adult. That would disqualify him from being his mother's only son, also the reporter's mother's. It had always been that way. The reporter's father couldn't be with anyone other than his mother, No one asked why. That was just what men did in the world the reporter was from. After his children were born, he fathered them from the distance of his bedroom on the telephone. Dark and stacked high with newspapers, the reporter's father's bedroom had a bathroom off it. Often, it smelled of Old Spice cologne. One thing the reporter loved as a boy of five or eight during the father-son weekends, the mother insisted on from time to time, standing on the father's washbasin and watching him shave, his tiny tits jiggling in his sleeveless white t-shirt as he did so. Instinctually, the reporter would look away from his father's moving tits, just as the father often looked away from his only son. Then the reporter would look at the ship on the bottle of Old Spice, a pirate world. Looking at breasts and feeling tenderness toward them, let alone wanting to touch them, was a form of piracy. After the father finished shaving, he'd rub Old Spice over the lower half of his face. Then, without looking down at his son, he'd dab a bit of Old Spice behind each of the reporter's ears. The reporter tried not to shiver, but he did anyway. Eros was a finger. Thank you. So when I first started it, one of the people who just could not share with Richard was James Baldwin. And the James Baldwin was going to sort of reflect in a literary way what Pryor was doing on stage as a performer. And the main thrust of the James Baldwin section was going to be this triangulation of the family in Prior was going to be mirrored by the triangulation of Baldwin's See to fall in love with men who, or introduce them to women that they subsequently became involved with. So the Baldwin section was about a great actress, Diana Sands, who had appeared in a play of his, and she had eventually married his first lover. So those were two stories, and they just were so egotistical that for many years, I was writing them both, until a, a very smart friend of mine who, God bless her, read thousands of pages, she says, they just don't like being together at all. So I took Baldwin out and started focusing on prior and Dave Eggers asked me about fiction. I had gotten such weird responses that I just didn't think it was any good. And then I thought, well, I don't know everything. Maybe they don't know anything. So I sent it in, and that sort of open the floodgates for me to finish. The book started to become clear to me when I realized that it was something that I had never done before, which was really writing about men. And I had given Richard Pryor a sister who was very angry about his fame and because she had wanted to be an actress. And, and I thought, you know, actually I'm hiding behind something I know how to do. I have to focus on this idea of the relationship of these black men together. And when I made that commitment, I could write much more clearly. Can you describe the sister and what she does? Oh, she does voiceovers for porn films. And she's a, like most actors, if, if people who work in film, they're enormous readers. So she spends a lot of her time not only talking about her brother and about what she does, but about her life as a performer and specifically about things that she's reading that don't reflect what fame can do to one sibling and and not the other. I think that when you have a character like that who's interested in the real, they often pick on people who came before who had trouble or had to find metaphors to talk about reality. She was such a necessary character for me to write to get to the emotional truth because she said it first so then i wasn't responsible i just had to get free in order to write just an observation this character is such a vivid real character and she's really talking about this voiceover in porn when i wrote you after i said was prior sister really of course you wrote back and said i don't think he has a sister." he didn't have a sister <laughs> <laughs> completely blew my mind well he had such strange parents and his mother worked in the bordello that his grandmother owned and the father had been very much in love with her for many years. When there was a custody battle, and Richard didn't defend his mother because his grandmother took care of him, but he was deeply in love with his mother and would go every summer to this farm that she grew up on. I just always was very haunted by that image in his memoir of the train and seeing her waiting for him on the station platform, and I thought how awful for him to be alone. He should have a sister, and his sister would be as smart as him and talk as dirty as him, but in a different way. The inspiration really was this film called Inside Daisy Clover, and there's a scene where she has a nervous breakdown in the (coughs) recording booth. And I'd always played it in my head, and I thought, wouldn't it be great if Richard Price just did voiceovers, but she would talk dirty, so that would be porn. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. But one thing that was struck me about the piece is you're doing a voiceover or her doing a voiceover. Right. I think that's the fun thing about fiction is that you don't know that you're just You're playing it's just a sort of process at what stage did she appear and solve your triangulation of james baldwin and you know what it was i was in the middle of a really bad love affair and living right here on eighth street and this person was a a tremendous talker and the only way i could get him not to talk was to sit at my desk (laughs) and he was staying with me a lot as you know from reporting you become incredibly sensitive to the rhythm of another person's speech. So I would say that that was maybe 5 years, 6 years ago. I really did like her so much. And it was also a combination of that and a great friend and actress who is a very brilliant woman named Candy Alexander who's on Tremaine who plays the sister whose brother was lost and she's just one of the funniest people in the universe. And so she would call from the trailer. A lot of the sort of profanity is hers. So it was just a combination of things. I don't really know if there's one source. Have you talked at all with your transcriors? I think the youngest audience and had an actress. And- no, it, weirdly, I was teaching at Smith's for several years and his daughter, Elizabeth, now teaches there. And I went to her lecture. And you never sort of want to alarm families about anything because then they lawsuits and all that shit. But I went up to her and I said, you know, I've been working on this project. And she said, oh, I loved your blah, blah, blah. And she said, I talked to my mother about that. And I agree with you. The only way you could write about my father was to make it up. So I felt I was sort of like carrying an Easter egg basket and people just kept dropping little bits of gold. Thank you very much. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.